This just in, it is big breaking news. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's Evening News. Uh, There is new archaeological evidence that has come out of the Middle East today that it appears to show Adam and Eve were tossed out of the Garden of Eden, uh, not for actually eating the apple, but for drinking pumpkin spice. Um, that that it looks like there's some credible archaeological evidence out of that. Uh, so you be on notice that pumpkin spice is what gets you banished from the promised land. Just, just so you understand here. All right. Now, we need to give you a quick radar update. We have uh, Hurricane Dorian completely enveloping I-95 at this moment. All of I-95 from Jacksonville up past Savannah uh, to Ridgeland, essentially. The exit you get off to at Hil- for Hilton Head. All of it is inside uh, Dorian right now. The outer outer edge of Dorian. Hil- Hilton Head fully, fully inside the outer part of the hurricane, Savannah as well, Skidaway Island, Tybee Island, uh, Port Wentworth that's coming for you, uh, Brunswick as well, Fernandina Beach, St. Mary's, St. Simon's, um, Sea Island down there, all of that uh, inside the hurricane right now. High winds, um, waves, the like all around the coast, miserable. They have reopened I-16 towards Savannah, Uh, but are urging people not to go in that direction. They have reopened I-16 because they need to get power trucks and whatnot to the coast expeditiously. Uh, and uh, that's that's the easiest way to get them down to the coast, but they don't want you heading to Savannah, at least until tomorrow or so. This storm is still moving very, very slow. Now, I want to discuss upfront Waffle House, um, you know, every once in a while, Waffle House, you get these stories of the media like, did you know this place existed? What is a Waffle House? Of course we knew Waffle House existed. Uh, and so I, I want to make sure you are aware of this thread of how everything goes. Uh, there's a big story in USA Today. But I actually found this Twitter thread to be much more interesting. Uh, Waffle House is not a a for-profit, or not a a for, it's not a publicly traded company. It's privately owned uh, chain of restaurants, and they're open, if you don't know, 24-7-365. I, honest to goodness, did not go to my first Waffle House until I was in law school. I had a buddy of mine who essentially lived at the Waffle House. My first experience at Waffle House, unlike so many other people's first experience at Waffle House, I was completely sober. Um, So, Subsequently, it varies depending on who I'm with. Nonetheless, uh, they've got a reputation for emergency preparedness, and the federal government actually looks at Waffle Houses to try to determine just how bad a situation is um, as far as the availability and sustainability of accessing uh, areas. Waffle House has what's called the Waffle House Index. Now, what happens is jump teams of operators from Waffle House get ready. They send generators, RVs, and gas to areas with restaurants that are probably going to be impacted. They make sure maple syrup, sausage biscuits, waffle rations are fully stocked. They try to plan ahead of time. And again, they're used by the government oftentimes to determine how bad a storm is. So, for example, uh, state, local, and federal governments use what they call the Waffle House Index as a barometer for how quickly a community is going to recover after disaster. When Hurricane Michael hit the Florida Panhandle last October, for example, it affected nearly 500 restaurants throughout Florida and Georgia in one way or another. 
all but three of them were back to full operation within hours or days of the storm. After Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, Waffle House had to close 107 restaurants in Louisiana and Mississippi. Some of those stores took years to open back up because so many employees were displaced. Entire city blocks were leveled. Some stores never opened back at all. Since then, Waffle House has opened 30 new stores south of Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, so one of the people quoted in this story is, uh, da, 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 Pat Warner, who is the director of public relations and external affairs for Waffle House. And according to, to Pat Warner, Katrina was by far our biggest disaster. Most of the restaurants opened up quickly afterwards. Some shut down entirely. It displaced a lot of our associates. Even if we could get the restaurants back up, there was no place for our associates to live. They had no homes. There was a long recovery. Even with Category 5 hurricanes, these types of closures are an exception rather than the rule, which begs the question, how exactly is the chain of nearly 2,000 restaurants in 25 states able to stay open during and after storms when most others close? And the answer is preparation. They spend a lot of time preparing. They send their leadership into the field. Uh, They have a Waffle House Storm Center. The senior vice president, the executive vice president, uh, they they go down, they camp out, they help out. Uh, Now, let me read you from this Twitter thread of someone who studies Waffle House. A Waffle House can operate without water, electricity, gas, communications, some cases even without a building. A restaurant without water, isn't that against health code? Well, yes, but Waffle House works to get variances for emergency operation, and they reconfigure. So if there's no water, they set up dedicated hand-washing stations. They switch to bottled water and canned drinks. They switch to disposable plates and cutlery. They reduce their menu. Waffle houses are the same and have preparedness designed within. So, for example, uh, the grills run on natural gas and propane, so you can pop in a propane tank uh, at stores if there's a disruption in natural gas. The Waffle House doesn't outsource unless it has to. It doesn't. It's not that they don't trust their suppliers, but they control everything. They ship in refrigerated trucks, gas, propane, water, cash, people. Volunteers from non-affected areas are flown in. The volunteers include the executive vice presidents, the CEO or the COO. Their direct reports could all go. Where are Waffle House executives during an emergency? They're at the site of the emergency. They're not in headquarters. So if somebody needs a decision, if somebody needs to write a check, if someone needs to authorize cash, well, guess what? There is a Waffle House executive there to be able to do it. They have food trucks. After uh, Michael hurt Panama City, Waffle House sent food trucks and gave away 2,000 meals a day. Also, affected workers who don't have a restaurant to go to, where they got personal or family destruction, they get paid weekly in cash. It's, it's a fascinating look at a private corporation in this country and what they can do in, in natural disasters, hurricanes, big events. Waffle House doesn't get a lot of credit or notoriety nationwide, but it is right now because of a hurricane. Uh, it knows how to stay open during storms, and it knows how to recover quickly after storms. And it is a Georgia success story worth pointing out. But there, there's a side angle to the Waffle House story that is also a Georgia success story. It is one of the groups that I oftentimes give money to, and that is the, the Southern Baptist uh, Mission Board. The Southern Baptists are typically uh, inside disaster areas before the Red Cross. They do not brag about it. They do not get credit for it. 
The media does not focus on them, but I distinctly remember in 2005 with Katrina, and it it is very much the same, uh, that Waffle House, Walmart, and the Southern Baptists beat everybody else into South Louisiana and South Mississippi. And you can say, well, they're already there. Well, yes, they are, but it was outside groups lined up, ready to go in while the hurricane was still passing through the area and bad, and they, they figured out the perimeter areas where the hurricane wasn't going to approach and then went in from those side angles and got into the area quickly. Waffle House, Walmart, and the Southern Baptists. Uh, you cannot underestimate the willingness of Southern Baptists to go into disaster areas where no one else does or at least where everybody else delays. It, it, it is just mind-numbing to me to learn that the Red Cross gets so much credit from so many people and every time there is any sort of major disaster, so many outside groups recommend you give money to to the Red Cross, and nine times out of ten, it seems like, it's the Southern Baptists who show up. And by the way, I'm not just talking about in the South. Uh, across the nation, Southern Baptists tend to show up and participate and engage in levels that others do not, and it is impressive to see. And they as well coordinated here out of Georgia, uh, just like Waffle House. Walmart, of course, being the giant, giant corporation, uh, able to get supplies in and use um, use the free market and use um, its own resources to be able to show up and help people and stock stores and oftentimes give things away for people in need of major disaster areas. In South Louisiana and South Mississippi, again, Walmart was very, very uh, key in getting stuff back up and running down there and getting supplies to people. It happens all the time. Waffle House, though, is the gold standard in handling disasters. It really is a fascinating operation, and it's one of those that because it is free market, because it is privately owned, because it's considered southern, the media oftentimes ignores it in the same way they ignore the Southern Baptist charitable efforts through their mission board, as opposed to, say, for example, the Red Cross and other groups. Um, it's just it's it's something worth focusing on, particularly at a time like this where a storm is rolling through. That it will be the private sector that beats the government in. It'll beat the Christians that beat the non-Christians in. <laughs> No, I don't mean, listen, I don't mean to offend by putting it that way. That That's just the truth of the matter. Um, it, it, it's it's a missional aspect to the Southern Baptists as to what they do, what they do. Um, and it's also with Waffle House, there is a family element to Waffle House. I got to tell you, um, I, I know a guy, he's not a friend of mine, but I know him. Uh, we were in a wedding together. Um, one of my best friends in law school was, was one of his best friends. And so we got to know each other. And his parents were going through a messy divorce. And he ate at the Waffle House every night. He did not want to go home. He did not want to be anywhere near his parents. Uh, And he went to the Waffle House all the time. And he ate, depending on the crowd size, there was one of three different Waffle Houses he went to. And when, when he got married... Those three Waffle Houses gave him and his wife a complete set of Waffle House branded china. Uh, they had enough for eight people. Uh, eight plates, eight cups, eight saucers, um, eight side plates, uh, eight knives, eight forks, eight, eight, eight foons, all from Waffle House. 
it, it is a very family atmosphere when you go to a Waffle House. If you've never been to one, you really should. Uh, this is not an extended commercial for Waffle House. I'm just telling you, it's an impressive operation. It is one I regrettably did not get introduced to until I was in law school. Uh, missed out on all those nights in college where I, I would have really appreciated the Waffle House. Uh, but you got it in law school, and now we take our kids there. It is a, it's a family outing to go to the Waffle House. They're good people. And what they do in disasters is genuinely impressive. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. This is really rich. So, you know, the the outside supposed public interest group, a bunch of uh, progressives came into the state, sued the state over the voting machines. And the judge said, you know what, Um, we're not going to get rid of the voting machines for this election, and the state has new voting machines coming in for next year. Well, they've decided, these paper ballot lawyers have decided that now they want $5.6 million from you. They, they said they were representing you. I bet you didn't know you were being represented by these uh, liberal lawyers from Washington, but you apparently were, according to them, and they've gone to court and said, you now need to pay them $5.6 million uh, from the state of Georgia uh, because of this lawsuit by progressive activists. This is that lawsuit the Democrats backed. Um, they don't want to raise your taxes, they say, but they want you to pay a bunch of liberal lawyers $5.6 million for not getting what they wanted in court. They claim they actually won because the judge said uh, that the machines are bad, but the judge didn't actually tell them to uh, take on the the ballot, t- t- get rid of the electronic ballots for this election and go to paper ballots. No, she said, uh, we can't get rid of the electronic ballots this year. And they got new electronic machines coming next year. So we're not going to give you the paper ballots that you want. And yet they want $5.6 million of your money. That's right. The uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is fighting this in court. A lot of outside lawyers say he's probably going to lose because technically they won uh, by the judge saying they had validity in their argument, even though they didn't win because they didn't get rid of the electronic machines. You know what's going to happen next year? They're going to sue again uh, the electronic voting machines. They more likely than not are. I I almost wonder, you know, the Secretary of State's office has an office down in Macon, and the the judicial selection in Macon is actually much more conservative, uh, more Bush and Trump picks than Obama picks down there. Almost makes you wonder, should they should someone sympathetic to the electronic ballots go on and file a lawsuit down in Macon? Uh, no, it'll probably be before a conservative judge. So the conservative judge can say, okay, yeah, the, these new electronic machines, they work just fine. Uh, we're not going to get rid of them. Be strategic because the left sure is trying to pick out judges to hear cases and get their way and charge taxpayers $5.6 million. The outer edge of Hurricane Dorian continuing to impact the coast of Georgia. I-95 from Jacksonville all the way up to Savannah now impacted. Uh, actually, the pooler area right there at, at 16 and, and I-20 is spared right now, but you get into Savannah, and the the outer edge of the hurricane actually goes straight through downtown Savannah. It, it's actually kind of kind of bizarre to see on the, on the radar map that uh, you got downtown Savannah, and just that line of the outer wall of the hurricane uh, goes straight through there. Um, Wilmington Island, Tybee Island, completely inside the, the outer part of the hurricane, Skidaway Island as well. 
Uh, heavy, heavy, heavy rain and wind down there right now. Uh, they have reopened I-16 towards Savannah, uh, but that's to get emergency crews down there. Don't go down there yourself. Uh, it's it's a mess. Uh, the wind is really one of the, the worst parts of this thing right now is there's a lot of wind, and there are spun-off uh, outer storms that have gone further into Georgia. Um, if you know where Hazelhurst is down in South Georgia, uh, near McCray, that area, uh, Vidalia lines, the, the very outer band of the hurricane uh, has, has swept through there with some really, really powerful but small clusters of storms. Uh, keep those folks in your prayers. Uh, we need to move into local politics. There was a special election last night in House District 71, and this is turning into a very interesting race. So Philip Singleton was in third place. Philip Singleton is the conservative in the race. Who He's a combat veteran. He's been awarded two bronze stars, very pro-life. And he was in third place. Democrats and Republicans were working together to keep him out of the runoff. And the reason they wanted to keep him out of the runoff is because he's been rather upfront that he's not a fan of the speaker and thinks the speaker is doing more harm than good and that the speaker needs to go, David Ralston. Um, and so you had a bunch of Democrats and Republicans rallying to keep him out. We we raised uh, this, put this on people's radar down in uh, Coweta and Fayette County. Uh, most of the district is in Coweta County. A little bit spills over into Fayette County. And uh, he went from third place to first place. And he won, he won the initial election. But remember, there's got to be a runoff for this. It's a jungle primary. All the candidates are piled up on the ballot. Uh, and so he's going into the runoff now 36.8% to Marcy Sackerson, 34.2%. Now, what the, the really, really interesting thing here is that Democrats suggested, given the dynamics of this district, it is suburban, exurban. It is uh, women voters will turn out more. Uh, women voters, particularly in these sorts of areas, they don't like Donald Trump. And so that would give Jill Prouty, the Democrat, a fighting chance. When you combine their disgust with Donald Trump with their disgust over, disgust over the fetal heartbeat legislation, this would be an area where Democrats would be able to make inroads. These sorts of districts are the districts the Democrats need to win to take back the House. That's what the Democrats said. That is what the Democrats said. It's not what I said. It's not what the media said. It's what the Democrats said. And what did they do? The Democrat lost. Uh, the two people who support the fetal heartbeat legislation won. Uh, so Marcy Sackerson, Philip Singleton, they will head into a runoff. Singleton is not supported by David Ralston. Sackerson is. She got money from David Ralston. I, I think he just assumed she was going to win because she is Lynn Westmoreland's daughter, the former congressman. Uh, but him giving her money uh, was a blight on her candidacy and dragged her down. She was ahead, well ahead. In fact, if you go out to the 71st District, and I did the other day, her signs were everywhere. You'd have thought she'd win without a runoff. Her signs were everywhere. But man, Ralston gave her money, and a Republican should be on notice around the state. David Ralston gives you money. You're going to have a tough time right now. And we're seeing that all over the state. Perhaps they should consider it's time for him to step aside. Um, but I doubt they will. Uh, Republicans, you know, Republicans just aren't bright when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, they they, they want to protect themselves, and they think the way to protect themselves is to stand on the status quo, even when it is clear that the status quo is taking on water and going to sink. That's what they're doing. 
Now, the Democrats are trying to learn some lessons uh, from what Republicans did in the 6th District special election. Uh, remember that race with John Ossoff against the 2,000-plus the Republican candidates? Karen Handel uh, won that on the Republican side, ultimately beat Ossoff in a close special election where the Democrats poured in as much as they could to win that district, and, and Ossoff could not pull it off. Well, now the Democrats are getting together in Atlanta in a crisis meeting with the National Democrats where they say they're not going to let the Democrats pick who's going to be the Democrat to run in the Isaacson special election. And yet some of the Democrats are coming out of this saying, uh, sounds like Washington wants to pick our candidate. By the way, at the top of the hour, I want to talk to you about the Georgia 400 expansion. It's kind of funny to me that Georgia 400 was for the longest time a toll road, and now they want to build toll roads on Georgia 400. We'll get to that in a little bit. But, okay, so Democrats are meeting in Atlanta with officials from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the DNC. Um, these groups want to pick who the Democrat is going to be to run in the Isaacson seat. They're really, really concerned about a situation where the governor picks someone to replace Johnny Isaacson, that person is able to serve January to November, build name ID as an as an actual senator, raise money as an actual senator, and then you have 3,000 Democrats who all want to get advanced to show up and, and try to beat them. And what happens is the Democrats divide themselves up um, five ways to none, and the Republican incumbent senator is actually elected. They're deeply worried about that. So what the national Democrats want to do is they want to come down and they want to pick the winner in advance. Now, I, I got to tell you, I, I am at least intellectually consistent on this. I think primaries do a good thing. I think primaries force candidates to do a better job. Take the 6th Congressional District. There are a lot of people I know who are mad at me for backing Karen Handel again in the 6th Congressional District, considering she lost against Lucy McBath. And I get it. I do not think it was her fault. I think there were external factors at play. I think that the outside groups abandoned the ground game. Uh, the race was very close. She would have won. She was let down by outside groups. It was not her fault. She did everything she could in a wave year for the Democrats, and she lost, and not by much. I say give her another shot. She knows the district. She knows the people. She has the name ID. Go for it. I understand that people, they're concerned on the other side, but... Uh, I've had several friends of mine say, you know, you should also, if you're supporting Karen, you should be browbeating the other people and trying to get them out of the race. And I have no intention of doing that. And the reason I have no intention of doing that is because I think a primary makes a stronger general election candidate. Now, there are people who say, well, they're going to spend all their money in the primary and they're going to have none for the general. I get that. That's a valid concern. But I think it is far better to vet the candidates uh, through a primary process than it is to have them run without a primary. And essentially, that's what the Democrats want to do is they want to deny someone the clarifying process of a primary and thrust them into what is essentially a general election without having been vetted. And their excuse is that, well, you're all going to be on the ballot together. So what? I think what will happen otherwise is let, let's let's be honest here. The Democrats do not have a strong bench right now. That's just the honest fact. Name a major, with the exception of Stacey Abrams, name a major Democrat in the state. You, there really aren't any. 
There maybe you can say Michael Thurman, who who is is how old and been where and done what for how long, when, huh? John Barrow, same situation, uh, becoming rapidly perennial candidate. Who are the prominent Democrats in the state of Georgia? There really aren't any. You're having to go down to people like Sherry Boston, the DA in DeKalb County, who, by the way, super sharp uh, and would be a formidable candidate if she decided to run. But she's not exactly someone with high statewide name ID. So who are you going to find? Well, the problem is, let, let's say you throw in, um, let's say you were to throw in Sherry Boston, John Barrow, um, let, let's throw in Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter as well, because those are the names Democrats are really, really pushing, uh, J- Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn. This is Sam Nunn's old seat, by the way. Uh, you throw all those people in, and what happens? Uh, they all have to pile on each other to try to distinguish themselves because the Republicans are only going to have one person in the race, whoever Brian Kemp picks. And if those people aren't tested in this election through this sort of primary process, the Democrats have no opportunity to grow their bench. So put them in there, force them to fight it out, vet each other through opposition research. Uh, The cream rises and they find good candidates and start rebuilding their bench. Now, maybe I shouldn't be giving them this advice because this is sound good advice, but uh, it's ridiculous for the outside national groups to come in, particularly because they live in a bubble. They don't know Georgia. They have no idea uh, what Georgia values mean, even to Democrats. And they're going to try to handpick somebody from Washington. That would be the kiss of death. And yet that's what they're trying to do. Not smart. You guys know the difference between a grassroots and an astroturf group, don't you? The grassroots group is authentic people on the ground who care about an issue, get fired up, and try to take action. An astroturf group is typically a group out of D.C. that comes in and uh, pretends to be a grassroots group. It's astroturf. An astroturf group has sprung up uh, going after Georgia Power. I, I actually support Georgia Power on this issue. Um, they want to raise their their base rate uh, from $10 to roughly $17. And you say, oh, it's going up. It hadn't gone up in 30 years. Actually, I take that back. It's gone up $2 in 30 years. Uh, And the problem is you got a bunch of rich people who are putting solar panels on their roofs and they're not paying into the grid. They're forcing Georgia Power to buy power off the grid from them if they have excess power, but they're not actually paying to maintain the grid. And that, that's kind of what the base fee goes to. If you have a house and you want access to power, even if you don't use the power in your house, well, you got to pay something to maintain the line to your house and maintain the power along the way. And it's divided across all power customers. And it hadn't been increased in a very long time. And this is one of the problems, you know, Europe is having this problem uh, with people with renewable energy. They never contemplated this. They forced power companies in Europe to buy back so much power being generated by windmills and solar panels and whatnot that aren't connected to the power company uh, that it's causing all sorts of havoc. And it, lines are degrading. The power companies don't have the money to fix the infrastructure. Look, I don't want to pay it either, but it hadn't been raised in 30 years. And now this AstroTurf group is coming in trying to make you be convinced that Georgia Power is bilking you out of a bunch of money, which actually isn't true. And it's still more reasonable than the other groups out there. Um, it's just, it, it, it's very, very interesting to see uh, the, so- listen, I support solar power. So solar, wind, you name it. You want to burn cow dung and boil water and, and twist turbines from that? Go for it. I, I'm okay with it. Find some unicorn farts to do it. Go for it. Uh, I don't think George Power cares. Heck, down near me, they're building a massive solar farm. But, you know, what happens is these companies come in, like Elon Musk has a solar power company now, and, and they rent your roof space. 
lets you get power from the solar panels, and then they hire a bunch of lobbyists, go in and, and demand that the legislature force the local power company to buy power from them, whether they want to or not. They got their own solar power companies. And then they take people out of the cost, which just causes the rest of us to pay. It's kind of like all the rich people who got their Teslas with the tax break, and then they weren't paying the gas tax anymore. So the roads, we had less money to pay for the roads that all of us are using because the rich people got the tax break for the Tesla. Um, I just, now I like Teslas, but Lord, that company, I, I would want nothing to do with that company. When we come back, speaking of roads and traffic, let's talk about Georgia 400, what the DOT plans to do with it and the rest of the toll roads. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's evening news on WSB. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Hey, by the way, uh, just to keep Charlie on his toes, you can call 877-97-ERIC in the morning. <laughs> Although, I think he's going on vacation, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you want to talk to Low T in the morning. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I, I got to talk about, before he disconnects me from the radio, Um. I want to talk about George 400 for a minute because this is turning into a thing up there. Um, so there is that uh, road. What is it? Um, oh, Encompass. What, what, what is it? Encore. Encore. The, the bridge over the inter- It's a pretty bridge. Basically one lane in each direction right there on the other side of Topgolf in Alpharetta. Uh, I was there this weekend. And um, so... They want to put a lane. The Alpharetta wants to put an on-ramp to new toll roads. And, and let me pause here and just say, I find it really, really, really funny that we are considering putting tolls on Georgia 400. For those of you who are new to the area, Georgia 400 was a toll road. It was the most bizarre toll road you would ever encounter in your life in that you could ride on the entire course of the toll road. And as long as you got off before Lenox Road, if you were headed southbound, uh, you didn't have to pay a toll. And if you got on uh, just north of Lenox Road and drove north, you didn't have to pay a toll. It was the craziest darn thing. So they put this toll, uh, undoubtedly, they put it right at Lenox and Phipps. And if you wanted to go shopping at one of the big malls, you had to pay the toll. And the, the rich people from North Atlanta would pay the toll. Uh, and, and coming in and out of the city uh, through 400, they'd pay the toll. Well, the toll paid for itself, and the way the road was designed is when the toll paid for itself, it would go away. Well, they kept extending it until finally people, I think they started threatening lawsuits and whatnot, and the toll had to come down. And this hasn't been uh, in the last six years or so. They tore down the toll. If, you, if you're if you just north of Linux, you've got that huge area, that, that expansive area with little buildings and stuff. That's where the toll plaza was. Well, now... Now they're thinking of turning the toll road into a toll road again. And they want to put lanes on both sides. Unlike the reversible lanes on 75, they want to do what's doing what's happening on 85 and have lanes in both directions, which isn't a bad thing considering the amount of traffic on 400. Now, listen, I'm, I'm kind of ridiculing this because they probably never should have gotten rid of that toll to begin with, but... This isn't a bad idea. They're doing that massive interchange overhaul at 400 and 285. It's going to screw up traffic for years longer. They might as well go on and do this. The amount of traffic. Now, I I should tell you, I get hate mail every single time 
I talk about toll lanes. People call them Lexus lanes. Only the rich people can. Speaking of, did you hear about 85 earlier today? This morning, it was Mark Aram who noted it, actually. Uh, the toll, the you know, it's an adjustable toll. As more and more traffic gets bad on the interstate, the toll goes higher. They try to price it to keep people out of the toll lane so that the uh, traffic keeps flowing in the toll lane at 45 miles an hour. The, the toll got up to $17. $17. Mark Aaron put up a screenshot of the of the toll at $17. Jamie Dupree from Washington replied back and said, look at this one. It was to get into Washington, D.C. on the toll in Washington. It was $45. $45. It's only $17 here. I like the adjustable toll. I like the free market principle. This is why I'm opposed to the anti-price gouging legislation. Uh, you, you you let the price increase. You keep more and more people from buying gas, and so you ensure the supply is always there. You increase the toll. You ensure that the 45 miles an hour stays pretty constant on the road at peak times. Uh, but they want to expand these, and people send me hate mail all the time when I say it's a good idea because they think it's just it, it's a fancy way for rich people to get around. Well, the po- the tolls ultimately pay for themselves, build the toll roads, and you're allowing the rich people to get out of the major traffic and free up those lanes too for the rest of you who are too cheap to pay. It's not like it's super expensive except at times like this where it's was $17 for a brief period of time. It wasn't even a long period of time. I think it's a good idea, and I think the DOT should be commended for this, but, 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 there is a but here. Here's my but on the toll lanes. Uh, I, I, you go to Texas, go to Florida, uh, go to other states. I think they still do toll roads better than we do in Georgia. I think there are still opportunities in Georgia to allow in companies, preferably not owned by the Chinese, to build some toll roads in the state. In particular, I'm thinking of the Golden Isle Parkway, and I'm thinking of it in particular because of the hurricane and the evacuation out of Florida. Uh, So you've got a US-23. It leaves Macon, and it runs through Cochran and Eastman, McRae, uh, and it goes all the way down to the coast. It it, It ends in Brunswick, essentially, the Golden Isle Parkway. And... You can bypass the 95-16 interchange going down that way. Um, And the Golden Isle Parkway, it's a combination of roads. Uh, Starts at Highway 23, and then it becomes 341. uh, And then it becomes US 25. Goes all the way down to Brunswick. And I just think that we should have private uh, private tolls in Georgia, or let the DOT do it. But I think we've got the capacity, particularly in the southern part of the state, they're building an inland port in Cordell. And the way the interstate is structured right now, for example, uh, you've got to take from Savannah, from the port in Savannah, which they're also deepening and widening to bring in more, more tractor trailers and more cargo, you go up 16 to Macon, where they're relaunching, rechanging the interstates, and then you go down 75 to Cordell. Or if you really want to, you could take US uh, 280 from Cordell through Abbeville, McRae, and the like, and, and go all the way over to Pembroke and, and I-16 there. I don't understand why we don't 
turn some of these into big tolls, big highways. Now, there's not a ton of traffic down there right now, but I kind of think the, the if you build it, they will come approach works for these sorts of situations uh, with tolls, particularly if, if you're letting the state and a public-private partnership do it. And, and the same is uh, the Augusta to Columbus route through Macon. Now, they've been building forever, expanding US 80 and the like, but it just seems like there's opportunity uh, with a lot of land down there a lot of farmland to build some private tolls and speed people around. You know, the other thing is forever and a day, they've been talking about an outer loop from 285. You've got 285 now around the city, but it just seems to me at this point, we need another major highway that wraps further around, maybe connecting Woodstock, Alpharetta, Johns Creek, Lawrenceville, around to Conyers, down to Stockbridge, Fayetteville, the like, Douglasville, Marietta, up to Roswell again, make a big loop. It seems like now some of this stuff is contemplated. When you get into those areas, there's still a lot of cluster in those areas. So the land would become very, very expensive. But I just think there's more opportunity for tolls. I'm excited that Georgia is finally embracing tolls the way they are. I just wish we would do even more of it with more gusto. Uh, We know they work now. We know they've improved traffic. We can see the measurable benefit of having toll lanes in ease, not just easing congestion on the non-toll roads, but also expediting traffic on the toll roads. I wish they would expand the toll road on the south side of the city all the way up past the airport, um, but there's a federal law prohibiting you from repurposing existing lane of interstate, inter, existing lanes of interstate for other purposes, and that law probably needs to be changed. But these, they really should be commended for this, and I'm glad they're doing 400. I was through there the other. I was through there on Saturday. Uh, Labor Day weekend, and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess on Saturday all the way up past Alpharetta. Uh, Those toll lanes would dramatically ease commutes in those areas, and I realize Alpharetta's got problems with what the DOT is proposing. They want to change some of the entrance ramps and the exit ramps. They want to put them in different locations. I think the the DOT has it right where they want them, uh, even though I get Alpharetta's concerns. But we should be applauding the Georgia Department of Transportation for doing this and expanding this infrastructure in the state in a novel way to expedite traffic because there are only so many more lanes of traffic we can build. We might as well build them in a way that allows people to pay the privilege of riding on them to then help cover the cost of maintaining them. That's that's money well spent. All right, Lucy in Sandy Springs, welcome to the program. Lucy, Hello, hi. hi there. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. Sure. I follow you on Twitter, and I'm an avid listener. Thank you. Um, can I ask my question Yes, now? go for it. Okay, so I'm new to the Sandy Springs area within the last five years, and I'm a young professional in my early 30s, and I came from North Carolina, so I've been trying to keep up with the upcoming election. And I'm hearing a lot of things going on in Congressional 6 where I live, and I just, I guess my question is, is, why is it so important for name recognition in that district with some of the candidates I hear? Yeah. They- okay. I, you know, th- this is, this is an excellent, excellent question. Thank you for it. Let me, let me explain why name ID is so important uh, because voters, particularly in urban areas are bombarded with so many candidates for so many races at the same time, the people with the highest name ID tend to win. 
Uh, when you, I mean, just take that race, take the 6th Congressional District race. You've got uh, three or four candidates running now on the Republican side, but then you've got state House races, state Senate races. You're going to have two Senate races. Um, people can't keep up with all of it. So the higher the name ID of a candidate in each race, the better they do. It's all about boosting your positive name ID, not negative, but positive name ID to cut through the noise of so many candidates running. It is Eric Erickson here. You want to be a part of the program? 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. The hurricane continues swirling around out there, stirring up the sea along the Georgia coast. Uh, Savannah inside it again. Poor old Hilton Head, my beloved Hilton Head. One day I want a house in Sea Pines. I just do. It's the one place on the planet where the moment I cross that bridge, I totally relax because I've been going there since I was in college and it was always where I went on vacation when I was in college. A buddy of mine uh, had a house down there. Long story. Um, But man, I I hate for Hilton Head to get pounded by the hurricane. Um, It will recover though. It always does. Now, let us get to the phones. Uh, I want to go to Brad in Locust Grove. Brad, how are you? All right. How about you? Good. What's going on? Hey, I just wanted to comment on the uh, <clears throat> the toll roads, uh, as you were talking about. And uh, I lived in uh, Houston for three years, and Houston has three perimeters. The third one's almost completely finished now. Mm-hmm. And the the middle one and the outer one, which is almost completely finished, are both toll roads for the most part. And it they really relieve congestion so much compared to not having them. I mean, like, you know, with Atlanta only having one, uh, it is, in my opinion, that's the best route to go is adding right. more, another perimeter as a toll road, you know? Yeah. Uh, see, it, it, and, although I, I got to tell you, there's a big scandal in Dallas because, uh, one of the toll roads in Dallas, uh, now has so many people using that toll road that it's actually slower on the toll road than it is the regular road, and people are livid. Uh, so you do have to do it carefully. Yeah, yeah. Just just compared to you know to what I've seen out there and what I've seen in Atlanta, it, it's just yeah. That's just what I've seen. So, but I mean, it's there's there's numerous ways to do it, but I, I, that's. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, yeah. too. I, I've seen and, that you know, part of it as well. You will not be surprised to learn, and, and thanks, Brad, for the phone call. You'll not be surprised to learn. I'm already getting hate mail from people who hate the roads and consider them a, a, a tax on the poor, an insult to the poor. Can I be, like, rudely, obnoxiously honest with you on how I see this? And I'm going to offend some of you who are friends of mine, regular correspondents with me and, and the like. And I don't mean to, but I'm just going to tell you exactly what I think. Ooh, do I even say this? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to say it. Um, yeah, there are people who can't afford to be in the toll lane. There are. There absolutely are. And they can look over and be jealous at the people in the toll lane. Or they can look at the people in the toll lane and they can say, you know what, one day I want to be in a job where I can afford to pay the, the adjustable toll. There are people who are in the toll lane who can get to their office quicker and be very productive, and it sucks for the people who aren't in the toll lane, but I see no reason to punish the people who can afford the toll lane and to be stuck in the lanes with everyone else, particularly when you're in situations where, let's see, Marta only goes up and down and to the side, uh, oh, and one little branch out. Um, it, the bus situation is crummy in Atlanta. 
I like the toll lane. Uh, you can be jealous about the people who get to ride in the toll lanes and, and envious of them and say, well, what about the rest of us? Well, you know what? Go get a, tick, a sticker and drive in the toll lane. And if you can't afford it, don't drive in the toll lane. Uh, but I think the toll lanes are good and they, they get people to their jobs productively and efficiently and allow people to pay extra to get there. And if people want to pay the money and get there, well, God bless them for doing it. Uh, many of them are people who commute into the city and provide benefits to the city of Atlanta and elsewhere with their sales taxes where they go out for lunch. Uh, when they're working downtown, they go home to their suburbs. They want an efficient way to get downtown and this is it. Uh, or, hey, let's just dig up all the private land and shutter all the businesses on the sides of 85 and take all those businesses, all those lands and put those people out of work so we can have just more general access lanes. I'm totally fine with the toll lane. Um, and frankly, yes. Is there a little bit of snottiness? You can say there is, but by God, if I can afford the toll lane and I can, I'm going to take the toll lane. It saves me in the mornings when I have to get to WSB. If I got to go up in the morning, it can save me 25 to 30 minutes on some days. Why? Because some idiot in the regular lane is texting and driving and causes a wreck. So I'm perfectly happy to pay for the convenience of avoiding the idiots who are texting and driving in the regular lanes. And I can hang out with the idiots in the big cars on the toll lane who are texting and driving and there's less room for them to actually cause a wreck for everybody else. Now, you're, you're, you're building the toll, which means you're taking tax dollars away from the general purpose lanes. No, actually, the, the toll lanes typically are funded by bonds, and some of that money goes back into uh, refurbishing them and keeping them open. It's not like they're taking money away from the general purpose lanes. That's an urban legend to say that they're taking money away from the general purpose lanes uh, because they put in the toll lanes. That's not really true. And they're adding capacity along the way that pays for itself over time. So it just, it's a no brainer. People, really, what it is is the people who don't like the whole lanes, they're, they're kind of jealous, aren't they? That's why they call them Lexus lanes. Because only the rich people ride in the Lexus lane. But that's not really true. And by the way, there are better cars for rich people to drive than just your standard issue Lexus. Call them the Mercedes lanes because Mercedes is headquartered here now, but it ultimately is. Oh, oh, well, I can't afford it. So he shouldn't be able to drive in it either. Um, just, just get out of your covetousness. Let people who can get, do it, do it and understand that you're take, you're avoiding having to bulldoze businesses along the sides of 85 and 75 and taking private businesses away to build more capacity. We don't have the property and the amount of taxes you would need to pay to take all that private land away to build general purpose lanes for the interstate. No, just build the toll lanes. They're good. We need more toll lanes, not less toll lanes. Listen, I, I did not intend to spend an hour talking about toll roads tonight. There was plenty of other stuff. Um, I, but the amount of hate mail, I it, it's amazing. It's like the Chick-fil-A issue. Uh, you, you talk about Chick-fil-A and you get a bunch of angry people emailing you who, who passionately hate Chick-fil-A and have probably never even been in one of the stores. With the toll roads, you get a bunch of people who are stuck on the interstate seeing people whiz past on the toll roads and they get jealous and angry. The number of people emailing me right now su suggesting that their tax dollars built the toll roads and they don't get to drive on them and that's not fair when it's simply not true. It, it, there's nothing different between you emailing me angrily saying that you don't get to ride on the toll road and your tax dollars paid for it when that's not true as it is a bunch of progressives saying that Chick-fil-A discriminates. Chick-fil-A does not discriminate. Chick-fil-A does not discriminate. Um, it, it just it, It's crazy to me the amount of people who get so angry about stuff like this. 
uh, stuff where they think it's bad. And, you know, one of the things is is conservatives. And, you know, my conservative frustration with the toll roads is that we're not allowing the private businesses to come in and build the toll roads. It, it, it's DOT projects, and they're funded by bonds, and I get that. Uh, but I think we should open up lots of Georgia to private businesses to come in and build toll roads and then charge us for the right to ride on. I am totally fine with that. As long as they do not have ties to China, I am totally fine with that. Uh, the more the merrier. Uh, build roads all over the place with private dollars, not tax dollars, uh, funded by bonds. Uh, let the private companies take care of it. We should have giant toll roads like Florida has on the way to Disney World. But... I didn't just intend to talk about that today. Uh, I, you know, I didn't even get a chance to talk about the Emeroid professor uh, who she's on. Uh, the, there's a professor, an Emeroid professor who is calling Hurricane Dorian a man-made hurricane, claiming that we used to not have Category 5 hurricanes except once a decade, which isn't true. And it turns out she's not a scientist. She's a creative writing professor. I, I'm going to have to save this audio and play it tomorrow. You guys have a good night. See you tomorrow.